Mark 6, chapter 6, verses 1 through 29. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? Where is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown, and among his relatives, and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he had laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two. And he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you. When you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly." But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you, up to half my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths, his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Thanks so much, Emily. Uh, hey, good to be with you this morning uh, once again. Uh, I don't know about you, but one of the things I love to listen to is movie instrumental scores. You know, where you watch a really favorite movie, you plug in the music, and you can remember the scenes, right? You remember the scene when this was happening, when that was happening. Well, as we open up Mark chapter 6, if this was a musical score... It would be something like this. I'm not going to sing it, by the way. It would be somber. 
It would be a number of chaotic notes that would end, that would bring the audience to a point of shock and dismay. Because in Mark 6, in these three accounts, they all have one thing in common. It's rejection. Jesus goes to his hometown and he's rejected. The second aspect seen is Jesus sending out the twelve. In the midst of sending out the twelve, he gives instructions that they're going to be rejected. And then, of course, the final one, John the Baptist being beheaded. What is Mark trying to get across? Let me put it this way. As Mark was writing this gospel, probably around AD 60, the early church was emerging under the Roman Empire Nero, who reigned from 54 to 68 AD. And if you haven't heard that name before, he was no advocate of the church. Uh, he was a really cruel emperor. He, he murdered his mother. That says something, right? And it actually led to a time when there was outright persecution of Christians. At one point, he blamed the Christians for the fire in Rome in AD 64. And so Mark, as he structures his gospel, he wants them to know and understand something. He wants us to know and understand something today. And it's simply this, that unbelief and rejection are the normal context in which the mission of Jesus and the church take place. And yet, it is in this context that Jesus still calls his followers to participate with him in that mission. Mark will not play it down. He won't sort of sugarcoat this reality. Mark, in a sense, in this section, he is straight to the point. He wants them to know, and he wants us to know that when you identify with Jesus and his kingdom, this is the context. It's a dose of reality. That as you move out into this world with the message of the gospel, oftentimes it'll be met with disinterest, apathy, and sometimes hostility. And we need it. We need this dose of reality today. So two headings today for a time. One, the context of mission, and then lastly, the participation in mission. So let me pray and we'll, we'll step in. Father, we pray today that this dose of reality would, in a strange way, uh, embolden us. By your Spirit, it would actually encourage us. And we ask this uh, in your name and for your fame. Amen. Well, the context for mission, it's actually interesting here. There's, um, this passage actually shows two reasons why this gospel and this Jesus is rejected for two very different reasons. And the first one in Mark 6, we see Jesus going into his hometown. And think about this for a moment. Jesus has quite a following, right? This is a significant following. He's made a name for himself, and now he's going home. What's going to be the reaction? You would think this might be quite the homecoming. And Jesus shows up in the synagogue, 
and he teaches. And to put it bluntly, like he blows them out of the water. People are so astonished at his teaching. And so look at verses 2 and 3, because this is where we see how they respond. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Isn't that remarkable? They, they took offense at him. They are scandalized. And the reason is not because they do not see his wisdom. They are not scandalized because they have not heard of his mighty works. They are, they are scandalized because he is the boy down the street that they grew up with. They know his family. They know this village. It's a rural village. One might say this is a blue-collar neighborhood. This is a blue-collar town. And now Jesus shows back up again with eloquence and with words of power and deeds of power. Here's the deal. They're offended because Jesus is ordinary. They cannot see past the veil of his ordinariness. Jesus says in verse 4, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own households. And Jesus responds that way because they look at him and they say, he's just too average. His pedigree is not great enough to warrant faith. And here's the deal. For some today, perhaps even this morning, you're here, you're exploring Christianity. You look at Jesus and you say, of what value does a rural carpenter from Nazareth have to do with my life? And so maybe you just move on. I remember not too long ago on a plane ride, I was having a conversation with someone and they had a religious background and yet it was clear that, you know, they really hadn't been involved in a meaningful way. And I just asked the question, what, what do you think about Jesus? And their thought, and, and the response was this, well, what about all the other religions and all the other practices that are out there? In short, they were just saying, is there anything really unique about Jesus? Isn't he just ordinary? Jesus responds to this rejection. We read in verse 5 that he could do, no longer do mighty works there except lay his hands on a few sick people, which is not to say he didn't have any power, but rather when unbelief is present, the disclosure of God would not go any farther. But look at verse 6. Jesus responds this way, and he marveled because of their unbelief. The language of marvel, it means that he is astonished. He is in shock and he is in dismay. Think about that. Jesus, he just wowed them with his words. They, they know his mighty deeds and they reject him. And he himself is in shock. 
He's staggered by it. Well, if the first rejection of Jesus is because they can't see past his ordinariness, they can't actually see who he is, the second is the very opposite. It's because they see exactly who he is. And we see this in the story around John the Baptist. Herod Antipas, the ruler of the region, had begun to hear about Jesus. Jesus had made a name for himself. And the question is, who is Jesus? And, you know, the text throws out that at that time, some would say Elijah, which was one of the most prolific prophets in the Old Testament that was to come. Others said John the Baptist, who had been beheaded. And that gives Mark a moment to talk about how that went down. And we see this. Herod Antipas had married his brother's wife. And that was scandalous, right? Herodias. And John the Baptist had called them out. He had said, that's not lawful for you to do that, to have your brother's wife. And Herod, in response, went out and arrested John the Baptist. And it was interesting, Herodias wanted to kill John the Baptist. But Notice this, Herod actually protected him. In verse 20, it says this, that Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. Isn't it interesting? Sometimes in the midst of even that cultural moment, there is still respect and there is still reverence to some degree, that there would be some level of protection, even if it's not received. And yet, Herodias seizes an opportunity. Her daughter dances for a gathering of Herod and his men, the leading men of Galilee. And she pleases them so much that Herod says, hey, tell you what, you can have up to half my kingdom, what do you want? And, and, and the daughter goes to Herodias and says, well, what should I ask? And she says, the head of John the Baptist. And it's remarkable because in verse 26, notice how Herod responds. And the king was exceedingly sorry. He didn't want to do it. But because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And so he ordered it done. Why put this in the Gospel of Mark? It's really interesting. This is a long section. Mark is a very short, terse book. But Mark wants us to know something. And it's simply this. That when you start to move forward with this mission, with the king and his kingdom, people will see Jesus exactly for who he is. And that is a threat to them because it means he's the one in authority and they're not. That means this, in every culture, when Jesus and this gospel moves forward, whatever is at the center of that culture, whatever calls the shots, Jesus is a threat to that. And that means whether it's a totalitarian government bent on keeping things in control, one might think of present-day North Korea or China, 
Or it might be in our own day, in our own context. I'll just put it this way, the exaltation of the self and what I feel. Let me put it this way. Some of you this morning, perhaps you're not a Christian and you're exploring Christianity. I'll just say this. It's going to offend you at some point. It's going to offend you. It has to if you've really encountered it. Let me put it this way. You might say something like this. Are you telling me that Jesus has authority to tell me what is right or wrong? That there is a capital T truth? Are you telling me that in personal matters like who I sleep with, what I do with my money, and the list goes on, that he has the right to tell me what to do? And the short answer to that question is yeah. But if I could carry on the conversation with you a little bit further, I would maybe put it this way. One author says this, we all implicitly have answers to the following three questions. Firstly, who has the right to tell me what to do? That has to do with authority. Secondly, who knows what is best for me to do? That has to do with knowledge. And thirdly, who loves me and wants what is best for me? And that has to do with, can I trust this person? And I'll say this, in our, in our current moment, the world's, our cultural answer to that is very simply you and you alone to all three of those questions. You are the best source of authority. Your feelings are the best source of knowledge. Your feelings are the best source of trustworthiness. And in many respects, I get it. So many of the outside institutions of our day the breakdown of families, as well as how religion is often used to manipulate and oppress others, can oftentimes simply lead to no better alternative. But let me ask you this. Do we really have the chops to put ourselves in all three of those categories as the answer? Haven't you ever followed your feelings and regretted afterwards? I mean, for many of you, this last Tuesday morning, you woke up after Halloween eating so much candy, right? The feelings were there, right? And then you woke up and you realized, oh man, seriously, Snickers are killing me right now, right? Now that's a small thing, right? That's a small thing. But it does say something. Uh, Let me put it this way. If you're exploring Christianity, I understand there are moments where it's going to feel untenable to follow Jesus, to submit to him. But let me put it this way. What if he really is king? What, What if he really does rule? What if he really is who he says he is? then yeah, he has a right to tell you what to do. But, but what if it's also true that he actually made you? That's what Colossians 1 says. He made you and therefore he knows what's best for you because he designed you. And thirdly, do you know where Jesus is going in the Gospel of Mark? It's where he shows his trustworthiness because this is how he shows his love. He lays his life down for you. Do you not see the one who has come as a servant king to serve you. 
One final note on this for the Christian. It's instructive that if our message is received by all, it is not the gospel message. Listen, there are ways to subtract from the gospel and there are ways to add to the gospel. In other words, subtract, it means just to affirm anything. You can do whatever you want. That's not the gospel. But let me also say there's ways to add to the gospel in such a way where they're actually not rejecting Jesus. I'll give you one example. It's simply the right-wing extremism of Christian nationalism. When you see a political and cultural extremism that's simply a grab for power, Have I offended you? You know, one of the most endearing compliments one of the pastors in town here got, a good friend of mine, is he's hanging out with his neighbors who were not Christian. And uh, his neighbors introduced him to some of their neighbors and said, hey, this is so-and-so. He's an evangelical, but not like those other evangelicals. It's a great compliment, right? Listen, when we moved here 12 years ago, one of the things I had was an opportunity to work part-time. I worked at Starbucks for five years, and one of the things that was wonderful about that is it just baked into my schedule, just time with people that thought and believed a lot of different things. And over the years, I remember having people in our home, having great conversations, seeing where they were, and I remember after three years at one point, driving in for a, a shift, and I remember I was so discouraged. Because when you're church playing, you hope like, man, will somebody please come and join my church, right? That's what the point of it is in some degree. But listen, I think one of the things that Mark has to tell us here is this. Do not be discouraged. Do not be discouraged. As you live out this mission, do you not understand that it is normal? It is normal to be met with disinterest and apathy and at times potentially even hostility. In other words, if I could sit with myself in that parking lot of Starbucks with this chapter, I would have just told myself, Nate, what you're experiencing is normal. All right, lastly, if this is the context in which the mission happens, how do we walk this out? I want to give four things from Mark 6, 7 through 13 that I think are helpful. Um, And the first is this, as Jesus sends out the 12, it's simply embracing this mission. It's just this notion that if you've been called in and welcomed in by grace to Jesus, that he does send you out. It's interesting that Think about this, this even like structurally for a moment. You have Jesus being rejected in his hometown and then you have John the Baptist beheaded and right in the middle you have Jesus sending. It's as if Mark is saying, right here. In other words, Jesus is not waiting for a more opportune time. 
He's not waiting for the culture to change around them. He's not waiting for Nero to get done. He is sending them now. So whether you're living in Mark's time in which Christianity is under Nero, under intensifying heat, or whether you're living in our time, in which there's a declined influence of Christianity, culturally speaking, guess what? The church is still sent. And as they're sent, as we're sent, they were sent to villages, right? They were sent more of a pioneering work, but as we're sent, it's sent strictly into our neighborhoods, workplaces, family, and friends. That's where we're sent, in the everyday moments of our lives. But secondly, I'll say there's this, I'll call it a nimble intentionality in this text. Look at verses 8 and verses 9. Jesus says, He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. Listen, these are unique instructions. It's not wrong to have an extra set of clothes. Um, right? But I think it does say something about this. Are we bogged down with worldly goods and pursuits? There is a nimbleness that they have, an intentionality that is so laser-focused. It's very clear. I remember in the early days of Redeemer City, we were basically, I mean, I was like, I don't know, 36, so super young, right? And um, it's a bunch of 20-somethings and who had no idea what they were doing here. I mean, just, just joking, but some of you are still here. But I'll say this, one of the beautiful parts about that season was, I still remember a whole bunch of young couples moving into an apartment complex just for the sake of doing life together and mission together. They were setting the bar. And listen, here's the deal, we, we've aged a bit, I mean, not me, of course, but some of you have aged, right? Um, but, right, there's a dynamic where we're at different seasons of life, but nevertheless, could we not continue to be creative and intentional? In, in one respect, you might say, that's why we do city group life. We, we try to work this out together. How do we do this together? It might also mean some of you just go like, hey, I'm going to look at my budget. I'm going to look at my discretionary funds. I'm going to choose to put some of that more towards hospitality so I can have more people in my home, so I can build relationships and love people wherever they are. But there's this nimble intentionality here. But then thirdly, there's this resiliency. You know, Jesus, he instructs the 12 as they go. In verse 11, the disciples are told that they aren't, if they aren't received, they're to shake the dust off their feet. And this is an important note. One commentator, Plummer, notes this, that this was not personal angst or resentment. This wasn't, let's put it this way, this wasn't the proverbial giving them the middle finger. It's not what this was. This was simply them saying, I have fulfilled my responsibility here, and I'm moving on. And that, mean, and that simply means for us today, listen, when you're met by disinterest, apathy, or maybe hostility, it might mean a certain point at which you feel like you're hitting your head against a wall. 
and you simply have to move on. Not in loving them, but it just might mean moving on for a season. But also, don't get discouraged by it. Remember, this is normal. This is normal. That's the context. It's normal. And then lastly, the church is sent holistically and yet principally one task. So look at verses 12 and 13. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. You know, it's interesting. There's this healing and salvation that happens in the most comprehensive terms as they're sent out. And it means this, physically, spiritually, emotionally, Christians should be engaged in very meaningful ways that help people. Very practically and tangibly, because the kingdom of God involves every sphere. I think of a number of years ago, about one worker who mobilized their workforce to help a school out that was working through after-school programming. Like, that's a good thing. Those are areas where Christians should be involved and should be leading in a lot of respects and partnering with others who may not believe like them. There's good work to be done. But this sending, although comprehensive in its scope, they are given a task to proclaim that people should repent. And over and over again, when you look at Jesus' ministry in the Gospel of Mark, although he heals, although he casts out demons, very clearly he has come to preach. And they're given the same message here. And I'll say this, one of the dangers of a place like Madison is that the principal task of proclamation becomes secondary. Perhaps it's a really good social cause. Or perhaps it's even potentially a political cause that is admirable and worthy of our attention. But when that becomes primary, we have deviated from the mission of Jesus. One more thing. As we consider participation in this mission, note this, that all of these accounts, they're all heading towards one place. They all foreshadow one thing, where Jesus is ultimately going. That Jesus is going to the cross, and why? Because he is willing to identify with those that are apathetic and disinterested and even hostile to him. That's where he's going, because he loves you. And then, as you are welcomed in by that through faith, you, in gratitude, identify with him. And you are sent out into the same context to partner with him, to seal healing and transformation take place in the lives of others, in faithfulness to him and this mission. So that's the dose of reality. Let's pray. Father, just pray for your help um, as we take this in. Lord, would you give us courage? Uh, would you grant us 
a soft heart and yet a toughness? Would you grant us a resiliency, an endurance in this city? Lord, help us to be faithful in proclamation. Help us to be holistic in our living. And we pray that many would come to see you exactly for who you are and not be threatened by it, but rejoice in it. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.